0: Lord, you have taught us that we sometimes need to be very quiet and very still and very open to listening and to looking and to perceiving with a way that is beyond our ability, but a way that you give us, perceiving the realities and the truths. Of the world that you have made, the world that you are part of, the world that would not happen were it not for you. We get so busy doing things that we want to do and things we like to do, and many things that are part of what you are doing. But every once in a while, we need to step back and stop, not only to listen, but to study and to discuss and to present ourselves again to you so that we can be in touch with you who are the source, the very ground, the very reason for everything that is. So we thank you for these few moments in time when we are safe, when we are warm, when we are well fed, when we are encouraged by the love of old and new friends, When we have a luxury that many do not have of being here to know you and to learn of you and to be close to you so that we can be part of what you are doing in the world. We recognize and remember these things now with great appreciation and with great expectation for what we will learn today and how we will meet you in the voices of the others who are around the table and in the challenges and in the inspiration that you give. We thank you for those things because you've given them to us in Jesus and the power of your spirit. Amen. Does that help put all that in context of what we're doing here today? Oh, I went to ladies' Bible study and the deviled eggs were really good. Yes, they were. Facebook meme yesterday. About one-tenth of one percent of everything that occurs on Facebook every ten days is worth repeating, right? And one of my minister friends posted yesterday something about, you know, resist the devil with all your might. I'm not going to give in to you, devil, but I sure do like your eggs. (laughs) So there we go, right? (laughs) Okay, friends, we're continuing that journey through uh, uh, studying and opening ourselves to some of the major titles or names or descriptions of Jesus, of Jesus the Christ. That's one of those descriptions, one of those names. We're trying to understand, as the early church and the church ever since has tried to understand, who Jesus is, what he was doing in the world, how he opens to us the reality of the creating God, God the Father Almighty, and how we experience Jesus and how we know Jesus and the continuing power of the Spirit. That's what we're doing. So let's look at a couple of passages, and we will focus on uh, hopefully lots of the things that they say. Just to give you a brief clue, what I'll be uh, talking about Sunday morning is the description of Jesus as the Holy One, the Holy One of God. That's the piece that we're looking at. But let's look at the broader context of all of this. First of all, 1 Samuel chapter 2 verses 1 through 8. 1 Samuel 2 verses 1 through 8. Hannah prayed and said, my heart exalts in the Lord. My strength is exalted in my God. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in my victory. There is no holy one like the Lord, no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more, so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by Him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble gird on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry are fat with spoil. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low. He also exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them He has set the world. We should be singing that shouldn't we? Sounds like something you could sing. Actually, it probably was. Let me set the stage for us just a little bit, and then let me ask you what things come out of this for you. Hannah was married to Elcana. Kana was also married to Peninnah. Peninnah had a lot of children. In that culture, in that time, Peninnah fulfilled her reason for being as a woman and as a wife. She had children. Hannah was barren. Hannah had no children. And as a result, in the eyes of society, in the eyes of culture, even in her own eyes perhaps, she was not fulfilling the main reason for her being on the surface of the planet. That's the context that we're looking at. This story is told to us at the beginning of the story of Samuel, 1st and 2nd Samuel. You might remember that I've said to you before that in the Old Testament in particular, when you have a 1st and 2nd book, the reason you have that is because the stories were so long They could not fit them all on one scroll that a person could actually lift easily, and so they put them on two scrolls, therefore, you had first and second. (laughs) Isn't that interesting? In the New Testament, when you get to first and second Corinthians, or first, second, and third John, you actually have different documents. They're, of course, very short documents, but in the Old Testament, the 1st and 2nd Chronicles, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Samuel is mostly just about identifying the place where you could find the literature. 1st and 2nd Samuel is really one story, one book, okay? So this is the beginning of the story of Samuel. You've got Elkanah and Peninnah and Hannah. Hannah can't have a baby. This presents a crisis. Where have you heard before in the story of Scripture someone who couldn't have a baby and there was a crisis? Abraham and Sarah, right? Abraham goes and finds a way to have a baby, but that's not God's way, and that doesn't work out so very well. Here's yet another story where there isn't a baby, okay? So as we pick up the story, Hannah is praying to God. She is distraught, understandably so, by the fact that she can't have a baby. Now, there may well be someone in this room who can't have a baby. And this touches your heart in a way that that none of the rest of us can truly understand, but with which we can sympathize. Hannah is crying out to God asking for a baby. And there's a priest named Eli who sees Hannah's distress. And he's not really sure what's going on. He asks her about that, and she shares with him, her situation. The, the risk for her is not just that the society will look on her as a less than perfect, less than fulfilled woman and wife, but there's a risk maybe that Elkanah will say, her husband, you know, you can't have any kids. I'm done with you. Elcana doesn't say that, but that's a risk to her. So it's more than just about, I can't have a baby. It's a, it's a risk. It is a, it is a delicate and tender and tenuous situation for Hannah just in terms of her survival and in terms of her thriving on the, on, in, in her life. So Eli prays, and of course Hannah prays, and guess what? Hannah has a baby, okay? Now that might not seem like such a big deal to us, but as I am fond of saying now today, if we don't have babies, we're toast, right? You know, yes, the world maybe is, is suffering, you might say, depending on your perspective, from too many babies being born, but we're talking about a period in history where maybe one out of two, one out of five children don't survive past infancy, and uh, the numbers are a little bit better for past five years old, and so having children that survive is a huge deal. If we don't have babies, we're done. Having a baby is a good and sacred thing. We're waiting for a... I just heard, we're waiting for a baby, right? Where are you? There, you're waiting for a baby? Okay, Where, there, yeah, yeah, there. I was looking for you, you're waiting for a baby, right? Not you personally. Yeah, I mean, these, these, these are grandchildren, right, okay? There we go, yeah, yeah. Nurse Ruth here is saying, oh, no, I'm going to have to deliver a kid any minute, right? <laughs> At any rate, Hannah has a baby. And the way the story plays out, just so that you know a little bit about the story, do you remember the name of the baby that Hannah has? His name is Samuel. We're reading the book of Samuel. There's a clue right there. Samuel's an important person. The way this plays out in history is that Samuel is born and Samuel becomes the last of the judges of israel okay we've studied that before here many many years ago the judges of israel let's put this in historical context God comes to Abraham, says you're going to have a big family. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, the family lives in Egypt for several hundred years. The extended family is rescued by Moses. They wander around in the wilderness for a long time. Eventually, the family gets to cross the Jordan River and come into the land of Canaan, the holy land. They establish themselves as the 12 tribes of Israel in a loose confederation, a political uh, and, and economic and social and cultural and religious religious confederation. And for about 300 years after Joshua leads the people through the Jordan into the promised land, for about 300 years, the nation of Israel, if you will, functions kind of like the original colonies of the United States, okay? There was no king back in England to pretend that he was in control of them, okay? But just 12 tribes, 12 nations, individual nations in some sense, and when they would come together, when they had business to do with each other, they relied on a group of people that we call the judges, okay? Don't think of a judge like we would think of a judge today, right? Sitting in a court on a bench and issuing pronouncements, okay? Interpreting the law. The judges of Israel were the men who, by virtue of their wisdom, by virtue of their wealth, by virtue of their stature in the community, Uh, Were the natural leaders, if you will. They were political leaders, uh, they were civic leaders, they were religious leaders. These were the judges. Israel relied on its its best and brightest, if you will, uh, to take care of the business of the individual tribes and to take care of the business between the tribes. Eventually, though, The people of these 12 tribes, as the story goes in the Old Testament, started to say, you know, if we could have one person in charge, if we could have a king, and if we had a king who could raise an army and who could levy taxes and do all that kind of stuff like all the other nations have, then we'd be better off. We'd be like all the other nations. And so Israel starts to pray for that. And Samuel and some of the others who are the leaders say, you know, we don't need a king like the other nations because we're not like the other nations. We have God as our king, but they persist. And eventually Samuel gives in. Samuel becomes the, the leader of all the judges, if you will, the, the, the first among equals. And so Samuel prays and Samuel anoints Saul as the first king of Israel. Samuel is a big character in the history of Israel. Hannah is Samuel's mama, Okay? That's who we're talking about here. That's the way the story flows out. But let's look at what Hannah says, okay? Let's go back to this woman who has been unable to have children. And by the way, back then, it was always presumed to be uh, the the situation and the woman. I was going to say fault, and you might say fault back in that that period uh, for not being able to have children. All right? It's Hannah's fault. She can't have children. God doesn't love her. God is punishing her. Something's wrong with her. She can't have babies. That's the way it would be viewed. But Hannah has a baby now. And so Hannah says, my heart exults in the Lord, etc., etc., etc. Okay, that's what we're looking at here. So let me ask you a question. This is a question I always ask. What words, what phrases, what thoughts, what stuff bubbles up inside of you from all of this language here? Let's start there. Nothing. Okay let's not <laughs> no i know you have to think about that right a while as you're th- i'm going to ask you that question again but let me give you a little bit more background information as you're thinking about that do some of your bibles as you have read them do some of your bibles move into a poetic form of text instead of a prose form of text okay many of yours do that there's a reason for that that's because this is written actually in hebrew poetry there are many who believe, and, and most actually accept this fact, uh, or this idea, uh, that this prayer of Hannah eventually found itself into the worship liturgy of the Hebrew people. Maybe it had even come from the worship liturgy of the Hebrew people, and it's something that Hannah had learned and that Hannah repeated Maybe not word for word, verbatim recitation, but Hannah had learned the prayer liturgy of her people, and she prayed some of that back to God, okay? It is poetic form, which says that it started off as poetry, or very likely started off as poetry and song. The fact is, is that we remember words better if we put them to a tune, don't we, right? Right? How many of you can remember the words to something that's completely inconsequential now, but you learned it a long time ago, and you can't get it out of your head? Okay? I know all the words to uh, the theme song to Gilligan's Island. (laughs) Just sit right back on your hair, a tail, a tail. Okay? Right? We remember words when we put the music. Israel did that. Hence, you have the 150 Psalms of David, words that mean everything to the nation, and you remember them as you sing them, and you celebrate them as you sing them, right? That's what we have here in this prayer of Hannah. By the way, where else do we have prayers like this? Did Hannah's prayer sound like other prayers that you've read of in Scripture, not just in the Old, but perhaps in the New Testament? Mary, the Magnificat, my heart magnifies, that's where Magnificat comes from. Uh, Well, yeah, the magnifies comes from the Magnificat. Mary's prayer is exactly like Hannah's prayer, really, theologically, right? And it's about a woman having a baby. Babies are a big deal in Scripture, okay? So, coming back to the question, what from this, what from this language rises up for you? What says something to you? Yes, yes, there is great faithfulness that that is underneath all of this, the faithfulness of Hannah to keep praying to God and asking God to deliver her. Her faithfulness, she takes her firstborn son and offers him back to Eli to to become a priest and to become a leader of the people, right? And Samuel, in fact, becomes that, yes, absolutely. This is the expression of a faithful heart. If someone asks you about, well, what is faith about, right, What does it mean for you? You could read this prayer, and there's all kinds of things about faith in here. Okay? What are some of those things, perhaps? the, The strength of prayer. Okay? Here's a heart, here's a woman who is powerless to do anything about her situation, and she lays it before God. God chooses, in this case, to do something about her situation, something that she wants to be done. That doesn't always happen, but that has happened here, right? Are any of you in a situation in life right now where you are powerless to do something about a situation? Anybody here in that kind of a situation? No. How many of you have more than six going on right now? Right? Yeah, could well be. Could well be. Yes, you had your hand up. We pray for our needs, but we also pray in gratitude, right? This whole prayer is a prayer of gratitude and thanksgiving for what God has done, right? My heart exults. The qualifying phrase to that exulting is really, really important. Let me, let me restate this prayer in ways that you might hear it prayed today. My heart exalts today because I'm such an amazing person. I've been given this award and this honor and been able to do so much more than anybody else has ever been able to do. It's not what we hear, is it? My heart exalts in the Lord. In the Lord, in the Lord, in the Lord. We've focused on who Hannah is and what's, Hannah, what's going on in Hannah's life and all that stuff because we need to know all that. But this is not about Hannah. Who's it about? It's about God. It's about God. My heart exalts in the Lord. My strength is exalted in my God. Right? How many of you, maybe at one point in your life, maybe now, feel like a strong, capable, competent person who's able to manage everything that you need to manage and you're going to take over your life and you're going to run it? Have any of you ever felt that way? Of course you have. Don't tell me you haven't. (laughs) Right? Right? But as I look around the room, I see some of you that have been around long enough, perhaps, in order to have run into something that you couldn't manage. Okay? If you haven't run into that, just wait. That's all I'm going to say, right? My strength, my pitiful little human strength is exalted in my God. And then, this one, this, you know, I should preach on all those things that preachers don't want to preach about. My mouth derides my enemies. Who do you think Hannah's enemies may have been? Penina. see you think the soap operas on daytime television they ain't got nothing as good as what's in the bible right right i you know oh golly i should have sent jan to teach this um (laughs) right can you imagine the relationship between penina and hannah wow now maybe penina was a you know, gracious, kind, loving, I'm so sorry for you, Hannah, or maybe not, or maybe both, right? Who knows, okay? Who else would Hannah's enemies perhaps have been? Maybe Elkanah. Now, we're told that Elkanah's pretty understanding, and yet, you know, woman, I married you, you know. Why did I marry you? Well, I love you. Okay, that's great and fine, but my posterity, my lineage is going to be my kids. Where are they? Okay, there's, there's two enemies living in your house right there in some sense, right? Say it again. The community, yes, the whole community, right? And let's be honest, we haven't really totally gotten away from that in our world, right? When, when a couple gets married, uh, one of the very first questions um, that his parents and her parents ask is, when are you going to have a baby? Am I wrong about that? Well, let that be a lesson, right? That's still a piece of, what, of what, what we worry about. But what does Hannah say? My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in my victory, okay? This is not so much in the end analysis. If you read the rest of the Bible, it's not about putting your enemies down, but it's about, it's about raising up your God who gives you victory not over your enemies but over whatever evil it is that has come into your life, Okay? There is no holy one like the Lord, no one besides you. This could be a Valentine's Day card. Did you ever think about that? Did you ever hear? I heard this years and years ago. I think I was in college. You can take any love song, any love song, and instead of whoever the love song is directed to, uh, you can direct it to God. And it's an, you most love songs are an amazing expression of the love that God wants us to have for Him, right? You can do that with Valentine's Day cards, right? There is no one like you. Has a man ever said that to you before? I hope so, right? You know, has anyone ever said that to you? Your mothers, of course, right? Your fathers, I hope. <laughs> There's no one like you. No one. That's unique. That's singular. There is nobody else. You are the holy one. Let's talk about the word holy for a minute. It's a great religious word, and a lot of people don't know what it means. We use it all the time. What does the word holy mean? You're holy, God. Set apart. It says right here. Are you reading my notes? (laughs) (laughs) Cool. Set apart. Okay? Okay. Now, most of us think of holy as something that's pure, righteous, good, it's not corrupted or or profaned by the world, right? We think of holy in that way, and and, and that's part of being holy, but that's the holiness that results from what holiness is actually about, which means different, set apart for something special in a unique way category, if you will. God is in a unique category. That's what holy is, right? When we take physical objects and we say, this is a holy thing, right? Let's talk about a sanctuary. We got a big church sanctuary sitting over there. You know, we sanctify it. We, we, we make it a holy place. We say, it is special. That place that's full of concrete, And and steel and glass and wood and fabric, that place that has all the normal stuff in it, is set apart for a special purpose. And we only do certain things there, and we don't do a lot of other things there, right? Right? That's what holy is. God is set apart. God is different. There's something special about God that is meant to issue forth then and create a context in which you have something that is pure and good and right and the way it's supposed to be. That's why we take some things and set them apart or we consecrate them for special purpose. You, God, alone are holy. You're the only one who is you. Right? Now that seems like well, sort of a no-duh thing of well, of course you are, you're God. And yet it's important for us to come back and realize that that reality, that thing that we confess about God, this is who God is. It should lead us sometimes to be very careful when we start talking to God, because we're talking to someone like nobody else. You're the Holy One. There's no one besides you, there's no rock. Like our God. And then Hannah goes into a long list of things that really all say the same thing, don't they? What do they say? Hannah says, Talk no more so proudly, arrogance comes out of your mouth, but the bows of the mighty are broken, the feeble gird on strength, those who are full are now hired out for bread, those who are hungry are fat. What's going on with all that? Do you recognize a pattern in any of that? Hannah's talking about God's power to eliminate the proud and to raise up the weak, okay? Yeah, God to uphold them. God has a way of reversing things. Isn't that interesting? Yes, God, there is a sense in which God chooses what we are to be, right? Right? Now, we don't, we don't like to admit this fact, particularly in the United States of America, and I'll, say, I'll explain that in a moment, but we don't like to admit the fact that the circumstances into which you are born are largely determinative of, they largely determine what the rest of your life is going to be, right? Okay? I was born into a situation in which I never was going to be a defensive lineman in the National Football League. Okay? Okay? I know, I'm certain, that I'm actually the long-lost child of European royalty, and I'm incredibly wealthy and powerful, and somehow or other we got switched at birth. (laughs) I'm not sure about that, but right? Yeah, there is something about the situation in life into which we are put determines much of what our life is going to be. There is also, of course, then something else that goes on, and this is that paradoxical nature of life, right? Hannah says here what? The, the fat are now hungry, and the, and the hungry are now full, right? The barren are now bearing children, and those with all children are, are not having children anymore, right? Uh, the Lord kills and brings to life. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble gird on strength. All of that is a way of saying that you might find yourself in a situation of life that you have been given, but sometimes God reverses that situation. Isn't that interesting about God? Is there anything in your life that you would like to see reversed today? I'm not talking about the heartbreak of psoriasis, I don't think. But I don't know why that phrase is stuck into my head. I, I come back to that all the time, right? God is a God who gives you what you have, And then can, and sometimes does, give you more than what you have. But it's ultimately God that's in control. Isn't that interesting? Now, here's an interesting question. Had Hannah not prayed so hard, do you think God would have given her a baby? Some people would say that. You just have to pray hard enough to get what you want. That doesn't always work so well. You can't really say that. You know, can you talk God into something? There's a couple stories in Scripture where it seems that way, that that God just got tired of listening. and said, okay, okay, I'll give you what you want. (laughs) But other times God says, no, I'm not going to give you what you want. It's God who's in control. This is all ultimately about the power of God, right? He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts up the needy from the ash heap, right? Part of this is about how God is with those who, whom it seems like God has forsaken. God is always with them and always with us, right? Look at this last phrase and then we'll go on. The pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on them He has set the world. The pillars of the earth are the Lord's. Anybody, are there any architects in the room? Any builders? Civil engineers? What are the pillars of something? That's the, the foundation, right? If you want to build on sand or if you want to build over here on the bluffs, you go deep, deep down into the earth with a pillar of something that's strong or many things that are strongs. You've seen hundreds of pillars being built on the five when you drive down by UCSD and they're building that huge tramway thing over the freeway, right? The pillars of the entire earth are pillars that God put there. Isn't that a huge image? Isn't that powerful and strong? Okay, so this is all about the power of God. In Hannah's situation, the power to give her a baby. And in the midst of all of that, she says, There is no holy one like you. You're amazing, God. Now, let's take a whole nother story. Let's go to John 6, verses 66 to 71. John 6, 66 to 71. I'll read it and then we'll go back and fill in some of the story. Because of this, many of Jesus' disciples turned back and no longer went about with him. So Jesus asked the twelve, do you also wish to go away? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom can we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? Yet one of you is a devil. He was speaking of Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, for he, though one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Okay, this seems like a very different story, doesn't it? It is a very different story in many ways. There's one key thing that, that connects them together, and you should already know what that is. But let me set the back story for you. This occurs uh, well into the story of Jesus as John tells us about that story. Jesus had started preaching and teaching and healing people and feeding people and doing all the things that Jesus did. And he has been talking right before this passage about uh, after he has fed a bunch of people, Then he says, I'm the bread, actually, and and, and ingesting me is what gives you life. And and in all of that, people begin to be very confused and very upset, okay? It's clear to some people like the Pharisees that in doing the things he's been doing, feeding the people and preaching the way he's been preaching, that Jesus is, is making himself equal to God, And no human being should ever dare doing that. And the Pharisees were right about that, actually. We get down on the Pharisees all the time, but the Pharisees were right, dead on, spot on, right. No human being should ever say that they are God. But here is Jesus, in effect, saying that He's God, okay? And here is Jesus saying that if you take me inside of you, then you're going to have life. Now, we're used to that language as Christians, okay? But think back to, have never, to people who've never heard that language before. That is just weird. That is ridiculous. That's, at the very least, it's confusing. It's kind of strange. And at the very worst, it, it leads you to what the Pharisees concluded, that, that Jesus was uh, a dangerous, deluded, uh, maybe even devil-filled blasphemer, okay? Okay? The result is that all those people who had started listening to Jesus and following along to see what Jesus would do next, out of that group of people, many started saying, hmm, this looked really good at the start, but I'm not so sure anymore. And they started to fall away as the way John describes it, right? And we can understand why. Have you ever been interested in a person or a product or something and said, wow, that looks really cool. Let's investigate that. And after a little bit of time, you've said, I'm not so sure about this. Has that ever happened to you? Right? Or maybe you've had a friend and you're really attracted to that person and you get to know that person for a while, but then you begin to see an underside that's there and you're not so sure that that's everything that it was cracked up to be. Okay? That's just real human life. That's kind of what's going on here with Jesus. And so Jesus has a (laughs) Jesus has a come-to-Jesus meeting with his 12 disciples. Do you know that term, come-to-Jesus? Yeah, that is so cool. I I like that better and better, right? We're going to have a come-to-Jesus meeting with Jesus, by the way. And he says to the 12, okay, he said, you know, people are starting to get upset. You know, things are starting to get real now. Do you want to go too? That's interesting. This is their out. Are you still in? It's getting tough. Are you still in? And of course, it's Peter who answers first, right? What does Peter say? Lord, to whom can we go? To whom can we go? What do you think Peter's thinking about there? He knew Jesus was God. Yeah, he said, you're God. There is no place else to go, right? Peter is the one consistently throughout the Scriptures sometimes gets confused, sometimes blows it, but Peter has some sort of inkling uh, even when he doesn't really understand what he's saying, right? Look, Jesus, you are the Holy One of God. Things might be getting tough and things might be getting weird, but you're the Holy One of God. Where else are we going to go? Now think about that for a second. Let's bring that to real life. Do you know anyone who has ever been a Christian and then given up their Christian faith? Okay? Okay. What happens in that dynamic? There's lots of possibilities, right? Sometimes people encounter terrible things in life and they say, there can't possibly be a God. I'm giving up on God. Sometimes they're hurt by something that happens in the church or through the activity of the church or by people in the church, usually people in the church because the people in the church are all screwed up. Right? There is no question about that. Church people are just messed up. Another Facebook thing. Have I told you this one yet? This guy said to a pastor, he said, you know, there's no way I'm going to to ever join a church, and especially your church. He said, your church is full of hypocrites. And the pastor looked at him and said, actually, we're not full. We have room for some more. Would you like to join? (laughs) Right? (laughs) I should have saved that one for a Sunday morning. That's okay. (laughs) <laughs> I thought that was great. So, so Peter says to Jesus, how can we give you up? You are God, right? But we do know people who give up on God. And think about that. What do people go to when they go away from Jesus? Oftentimes they go away to just nothing. They say, you know, I don't know what's going on here. I'm just going to put my head down and do my best today and let the rest take care of itself. That's what a lot of people do. Sometimes people go find some other religion, some other guru, some other way of looking at things. That, that happens, okay? But if Jesus is who we say He is, who He said He was, who He demonstrated He was, then where else would we go, right? We have come to believe and know that You are the Holy One of God. Now, let's just take care of the last couple of verses in this. Jesus then goes into a conversation about Judas and says, I've picked all 12 of you. I'm the one who called you here. You actually didn't even volunteer for this. I volunteered you. There is a sense in which God is the one who determines our future. That's something else that Americans don't like to talk about because we think that we are completely free to choose and do whatever we want to do. That's built into our DNA, right? We don't, we don't have a king back there somewhere or an old-fashioned social system back there somewhere that dictates what we're going to do. We're free. We get to do whatever we want to do, and that's cool stuff. I love that stuff. I believe that stuff, but that's also not true, right? You are not free to choose to whom you were born or anything about the circumstances of your life, right? Right? You are free to choose, in some sense, what you do with all that, but there's a sense in which life is not chosen, it is given. Faith is given to you. Do you know why you believe in God? Maybe the Holy Spirit. That's right. Why do some people believe and other people not believe? That's a huge mystery and a huge question. Yes, we think, we choose, but then God also gives that gift. Jesus says here to the twelve disciples, I chose you. In some sense, they can't leave him because he's chosen them. If you talk to anybody who walks a long and difficult way with God, they will say to you inevitably, I chose this, but you know what? Even more so, it was chosen for me. I had no choice. I had no choice. Now, we do have to get into the conversation. We won't do it today, though. Jesus chose 12, and he did a nearly perfect job of choosing. One of them turned out to be a rotten apple, right? Did Jesus mess up? That's an interesting question to ask. We won't answer that today. There's a lot of interesting answers. Let's go back to what Peter says. We've come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Now, I want to attach those two things together. Hannah, who's just been given the gift of Samuel, says, there is no holy one like you. And now, Peter says about Jesus, you are the holy one of God. What was Peter saying about Jesus? He's God. Go further. What all did Hannah say about the Holy One of Israel in her prayer? She said He was the foundation of everything. He was the one who can reverse a terrible situation. He's the one who is with people in their terrible situations. He has not deserted them. He is the one who takes the arrogant, the proud, the self-sufficient those who think they're in control, and wipes them away. He's the one who is the source of knowledge, not everybody else, him and him alone. Think of all those qualities and all those attributes that Hannah expresses in her prayer about God, and Peter is saying, that's who Jesus is. Isn't that fascinating? You see, Peter did not just create all of his Uh, language about Jesus from out of nothing. Remember, Peter was a good Jew. Peter had, had, we don't know a lot about his background, but but it's clear from the responses and the things that that come from out of the disciples, especially those who get a little more airtime like Peter. In the language that Peter uses, in the questions he asks, in the statements that he makes, it's very clear that Peter has gone to Sunday school all of his life. And he attended youth group all of his life. And he read the scriptures all of his life. And he paid attention to boring preachers all of his life. Peter knew the language. He knew the history. He knew the tradition. He knew the faith of his people. And he well knew what he was saying when he called Jesus the Holy One of God. Isn't that amazing? Now, a lot of this comes as no particular form of news to us because this is the fundamental orthodox Christian faith, right? And some of you have been Christians for more than a few minutes. And you've studied and you've learned, but it's so important for us to get back in touch with the radical thing that Jesus is is doing and the radical new understanding that people like Peter would have of Jesus because it then takes us back to the importance of who Jesus is perhaps today, right? So, let's go to this question. If Jesus is the, I don't mean one of, but the, singular, there is no other. If Jesus is the Holy One of God, what does that tell you about what you need to do with Jesus? About how you respond to Jesus? About what you do with the fact that Jesus exists? What do you do with all that? Yes, ma'am. Listen to what He says and act on them. Absolutely. Absolutely don't bother listening to anybody else. Only listen to somebody else as they can inform you about Jesus, right? And of course, not just Jesus, but everything that Jesus opens to us, right? Jesus is the supreme authority. What else? Yes, yes, yes. We need to believe Him, not believe in Him, you know the difference, You know the, what I'm speaking about there, the difference in that. You can say you believe in something, you know, but do you believe it? Do you actually act on it, right? One of the problems of modern Western Christianity, and it's not just Western, but it's been something that's highlighted in the last 20 years or so for us, is that a lot of modern Western Christianity started to push the idea that what, what you needed to do was come to this place where you could say with some degree of, of genuine uh, feeling and integrity that you believed in Jesus. Yeah, I believe Jesus is the Son of God. I believe Jesus forgives my sins. And because of all of that, I believe I'm going to heaven, okay? And there's no, all of that is true, right? There's nothing wrong with that. But it stopped there. It stopped there. You say, I believe in Jesus. I am Christian, Okay? But then it stopped, and and people never went any further with that. And it's hard to go further with that. It's hard to believe Jesus when Jesus says, do this and don't do that. Act this way and don't act that way. Trust me. Trust me, trust me. And start to learn to live the way of life that Jesus lived. That's hard to do sometimes, isn't it? Do you remember how things ended up with Jesus? Does anybody know the end of the story of Jesus? How did things end up with Jesus? He was crucified. Okay, let's all sign up to be crucified. No, I'll sign up to bring deviled eggs. In my case, I'll sign up to eat the deviled eggs, right? But don't ask me to sign up to be crucified. That's the way it ended up with Jesus and many of the original 12 and many since then. Is that what you're signing up for? It's tough stuff. Some say that there are more Christians being uh, persecuted and actually martyred today in the modern world uh, than any time in the last several hundred years in other parts of the world, and so we get to ignore it, (laughs) but there's one piece of it. There's one piece of it. Do we believe Jesus? If he is the Holy One of God, there's the challenge. What else does this stir up in you? Gene Peterson's paraphrase, if you want to follow me, you have to let me lead and not you because I'm in the driver's seat. Yes. Do I think that's why some people have difficulty accepting Christ because they can't surrender control? Absolutely. Absolutely. I almost have, don't take this too far, and I, I never mean, you might hear me say things, I never mean to condemn anyone. Only God can do that, all right? Most of what I say is just stuff that goes on inside of me, but I almost have more respect for a person who seriously considers what Jesus said and says, no, thank you, then a person who never really thinks very much about it says, yeah, yeah, I believe in Jesus, that's cool. Because if you really seriously consider what Jesus said, you might say no, right? You're signing up for crucifixion. Obviously, most of us in this room are not going to be crucified. Uh, There are people still being crucified sometimes, right? Most of us, well, I can't say for sure, (laughs) right? Right? But when you sign up for following Jesus, you sign up for giving up your control of your life and you say you're in control now. That doesn't mean you're excused from making decisions. Of course you have to make decisions. You are responsible for your relationship with God through Jesus, okay? And the good here's the good news, two pieces of good news in that. One piece of the good news is is that God helps you with that. And God understands and God forgives when you screw it up because you have and you are and you will. Okay? That's good news. But the other piece of the good news is that even though signing up for Jesus is signing up for really really tough stuff, it's actually easier than not signing up with Jesus. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought about what it would be like to say Jesus, I'm I'm not going to follow you. I'm not going to learn and live according to the reality of who God is by what you have done, but I'm going to live by some other reality. I'm going to live as if everything depends on me. Think about the weight that is on you if it all depends on you, right? Think about the weight that is on you if you say, you know, there is nothing at the end of this life, and I'm just going to do the best I can and live however I want to now, and then it's just all done. Now, that works for a while because human mind has a really great way of ignoring reality But at some point, reality is going to hit you like a brick wall in the face. Do you really want to take your last breaths believing that that's the end of your existence? So I would propose to you that following Jesus as hard as it is, is easier than anything else because it's better than anything else. Do you want to live with peace, with joy, with patience, with kindness, with gentleness, with self-control? Is that what you want in your life? Or do you want to live with anger, hatred, fear, envy, insatiable desire? Is that what you want to live with? Do you want to live thinking that everybody is your enemy or that everybody is a creation of God? How do you, how, what do you want to choose? That's, that's kind of where the choice is. Isn't it interesting? Someone else, is something boiling up inside of you. Or maybe this has to bake for a while. That's interesting. Yes. Yeah. Hannah comes with her worship and her adoration, not her checklist, okay? In a sense, she had already given to God her checklist. I need a kid, God, okay? And God, God certainly honored that. God had a bigger plan than Hannah, isn't that it? Do you think that Hannah knew that she was going to give birth to Samuel, who would anoint the first king of Israel, and, and usher in an entire new era in the history of Israel? That's what Hannah's baby did. I don't think Hannah had a clue that that was going to happen. Hannah wanted a baby, and boy, did God give her a baby, right? And then Hannah turned it all over to God. Clearly, Hannah was not a checklist person, right? I'm in this, God, only for what you can give me. What she talks about, in, as she describes God, is she talks about the need for humility, the need for submission to God, the need for understanding that whatever circumstance you find yourself in, in life, God is there, God is with you. All of those things are the attitude and the conviction of a faithful heart that dictated how she lived her life and is, of course, meant to be an example to us. Isn't that fascinating? There's a lot of good stuff in here, isn't it? Okay, I've, I've twisted your brains around enough. Isn't this amazing? Any last final word that we can't live without hearing? Let me pray. God, thank you so much for being God. Help us to allow you to be God and us not. And then give us grace and give us strength, give us wisdom, give us all the things that we need to have so that we can point to you and help others know you. For Jesus' sake, amen. God bless you all.